when folks use the term digital divide, we will often remind them there's more than one digital divide. As technology progresses, we will we find ourselves in more and more situations where there's somebody who has access or somebody who has skills and somebody who doesn't. You're listening to episode 284 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. To most of us, the term digital divide relates to issues of economic inequalities, but the issue is actually more complex. In this episode, Christopher talks with Angela Seifer from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance about the problem of digital inclusion and some of the steps communities are taking to address it. Angela and Christopher also discuss some of the causes of digital inequality, how network neutrality affects digital inclusion, and the relatively new phenomena of digital redlining. Be sure to take a few minutes to check out their website, where they have some great resources at digitalinclusion.org. Now let's get to it. Here is Christopher with Angela Sievert from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I'm talking today with Angela Seifert, the Executive Director for the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thank you for coming. You know, I've I've been aware of your work for a long time, and it's a it's frankly it's a travesty that I haven't had you on. We've been on a a bit of a rural kick lately, and so I'm hoping people will appreciate getting back to uh, more of an urban policy issue. Not that digital inclusion is exclusively an urban policy issue, but I think a lot of your groups are focused on urban areas. Um, let's just start off very briefly. Your Digital Inclusion Alliance. What is uh, digital inclusion? So the way we define digital inclusion? Is it is it the activities that get us to digital equity? And that's totally doesn't make any sense unless you know what digital equity is, right? Well, so, then let me, let me ask you then, <laughs> what is digital equity? So digital equity is the condition in which individuals and communities have the information technology capacity that they need for full participation. And you can think of full participation as civic, cultural, employment, education, health, so there's a lot of things that require us to have access and use of technology. And so we define digital equity as that goal. That's what we want is everybody participating there. And then digital inclusion is how do we get there? And the way you get there is you have to have access at home. It needs to be affordable. It needs to be the right speed. You need the right device that is appropriate for your needs. You need to have tech support and you need digital literacy skills. So those are the programs and the activities that get us to the digital equity. Now, you said that we need to have access at home. I'm strongly in agreement with you. But tell me why that's the right, uh, the right thing as opposed to just focusing on libraries and saying, well, a person could go to a library or a community center for that high quality access they might need. The public access is um, an important resource in communities, but we can't rely upon that public access to do our day-to-day tasks. What is required of us now to participate in society is so much and so pervasive, there's no way it can be done during the hours you can get yourself to a public access center. Anyone who has teenagers will tell you they don't do their homework when you think they should do their homework. They do their homework about 10 o'clock at night when you think they should be going to bed, right? So how can we send them to the library at 10 o'clock at night? That's impossible. And for the rest of us too, when am I doing my online banking? It's not during normal hours, it's after I've gotten the kids to bed. 
Well, and I would say that as a, a parent of a two-year-old, happy birthday, Jackson, just passed. <laughs> um, it's hard to imagine how inconvenient it would be to to be trying to figure out how to apply for a job, you know, especially if I didn't have the incredible computer skills that I do have. I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly talented. I don't know if you know that or not. Um, <laughs> but if, if I was a person who struggled to use a computer with a two-year-old on my lap trying to, you know, I just imagine that that would be um, a hassle in, in the library. And I think it, it gets down to, do we think that the internet and use of the internet is so important today? Is it a public utility? Is it something you have to have? Is it like electricity? And if so, is it something where we're going to say, well, if you're poor, sorry, you got to get yourself to the library and too bad for your kids. Or are we going to say, no, this lifts all of us up just like electricity, right? It lifted all of us up when we all had it. It's the same thing with the internet. It lifts us all up. Right. When we talk about digital inclusion programs, one of the senses that I get is that um, they're um, spread unevenly. And so, you know, in coming years, I would expect that we will see there are communities in which everyone has um, that access, where uh, an entire city may have achieved digital equity, and yet uh, nearby or a comparable city in another state would not have. You know, it seems like there's kind of an unevenness, um, in part because of these digital inclusion programs seem to be highly local in nature right now. Uh, So maybe you could tell me, is there anything that links digital inclusion programs together that they all have in common? We don't have, in the United States, we don't have a federal program or even a national program that defines how it is that we are going to make sure everyone has access. Um, And so that means that all of these solutions have been local. They're locally created. Uh, They work within particular communities. The strategies are based upon existing resources, maybe not upon how somebody would actually want to solve the problem, but upon the resources they have in front of them. Um, and so they, and they go at it from different ways. So if you look at any community, sometimes you'll find a computer recycling operation that gets low cost computers into the hands of, um, disadvantaged populations. And sometimes you don't, sometimes you'll find a project that is helping educate individuals as to the low cost internet offers that are available in that area. And sometimes you don't. (laughs) And so all of these different solutions, they go at it a different way. And if there isn't someone who says, hey, let's figure this out, then that program just doesn't exist in that community. Is this typically an effort that's uh, activist driven where it's some people that, that are doing this out of the goodness of their heart and after hours? Is it a local nonprofit? Is it a municipal taxpayer subsidized kind of operation? You know, how do these programs work? It has been all of those things because it's local. Sometimes it is a municipality. And we have um, on our website, digitalinclusion.org, you'll see there's a trailblazer section where we tell you which cities municipally led efforts are really impressive and here's what they're doing. But in other places, the municipality is not involved and it's just community-based organizations or it's just the library. Sometimes foundations are involved, local foundations, um, but the efforts vary. So it's not just one entity. The three places where we most often see digital inclusion work is community-based organizations, libraries, and local governments. And is there any particular program you'd just like to to quickly highlight? I'm sure that there's many programs, but is there there one you could just tell us about? Ideally one I think that's run by a city since we we tend to focus on municipally-led infrastructure in the show. Different city programs. Let's see, the city of Seattle, they have been the the one program that all of us wished we had in our city for (laughs) 
uh, over a decade, probably 15, 16 years, because they have actual funding for digital inclusion programs. And they have significant funding, and I think they have four staff. Like, it's a big number. <laughs> most, most cities have zero staff or maybe a half-time person. Uh, and Seattle has an actual department whose job is to help support the, they call it a community technology, um, because it was created back when that's the term that we all used, um, or that some of us used. Uh, so the, the community technology department there, they provide grant funding and they provide support to the community-based organizations and libraries that are doing the digital inclusion work. Great. Unfortunately, there's kind of a, a flip side to digital inclusion organizations, and that's the redlining. Um, I, I almost said redlining campaigns, but really it's more of a, a practice that I think is more or less natural in an environment with very little regulation and where the infrastructure is provided by uh, profit-seeking institutions. Um, and so let me just ask you, you know, for people who might not be familiar with that term or may have only heard it in regard to banking, uh, what is digital redlining? The way that NDIA has used the term digital redlining is to refer to uh, neighborhoods or even households where they do not have access to a particular broadband infrastructure. Um, and the reason that they don't have an access to that broadband infrastructure is because the company rolling it out chose not to roll it out to that neighborhood because that neighborhood uh, is inner city or is uh, adjacent to inner city. And from where we're sitting, we're making assumptions that probably it was a decision about profit, um, that you're going to make more profit if you invest your infrastructure in a wealthier neighborhood, which is totally logical, except um, the companies don't want to talk about that fact. One of the things that, that we've come across in, as we've learned more about the municipal space is the real challenge of people that have bad credit, uh, which is to say that in, in these low-income neighborhoods, and, and we're, we can talk about Cleveland, where NDIA has been very active, and, and I, we're going to come back and we're going to focus a show just on Cleveland and what's happening there with digital redlining. Uh, but uh, one of the things that uh, I suspect happens is there's a strong demand there, but people uh, both have trouble paying the bills and then also can get behind for a month or two, and then they're kind of stuck. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm just, uh, it's worth noting that um, as companies not investing in those areas, it's not necessarily because of a lack of demand. It's because of barriers to exercising that demand, in, in my experience. I think the challenge also is that we don't know why the companies aren't investing there. Maybe it has something to do with that. Maybe it doesn't, right? Maybe it's, it is really because they can charge more for a service in a different area. And because we're not having honest conversations with the companies rolling out the service and the digital redlining work we did in Cleveland was about AT&T, because we haven't been able to have those honest conversations, we don't know why they're not rolling it out there. That's a it's a really good reminder, and and I think it's worth noting. Sometimes we fall into the trap, um, and I, I say this of people who, like you, I suspect as well as me, um, are very suspicious of people who have this belief that markets are magical. Now, I happen to love markets, and I and I love studying what makes markets work, and I recognize sometimes they don't work. One of the reasons they sometimes don't work is because people bring their own prejudices into their work, and so if AT and T is not investing in Cleveland, it may not be for good reasons, it might be because they are just making some assumptions in terms of where they're investing. Because frankly, AT&T is not a brilliant company in terms of, of its history of making smart investments. <laughs> <laughs> and and the challenge in, in this is that as we did the mapping and we saw that we were, we were able to overlay 
where AT&T was rolling out their more advanced services and where the poverty levels were. And we did it in Cleveland, Detroit, Toledo, Dayton, and we've encouraged others to do the same work. With the challenges that when we when we do that, we don't know we don't know the whys, right? And we get reassurances that AT&T will bring infrastructure there, but it might look different. <laughs> and we don't know what that look different is, if it's going to be as good as what the other neighborhoods have received. Right. And, and again, I think this, this comes back to just uh, a paradox of U.S. policy, which is um, ignoring the trade-off of embracing a competitive uh, you know, s- um, style of markets without um, being able to require or or encourage that competition and getting rid of all the regulation that that previously would have led to more investment, um, you know one of the things that I think people miss in terms of why we have cable networks everywhere in our cities is because cities required them to go everywhere, and we don't have that with internet access and there's a good reason that uh, we may not want to encourage that, but there is a trade off to that. We've made NDIA's made a clear line between the fact that the states that have state franchise, cable franchise laws, and where there are digital redlining. That so in Ohio, for example, AT&T did not need to roll out to everyone because it's a state franchise. In fact, they skipped the whole city of Youngstown because they just didn't want to go to Youngstown. When you think about Ohio, people might think of Cincinnati, Cleveland as being pretty hard hit. In the modern economy, um, you know, I just learned this in Columbus when I was there with the uh, the folks from the intelligent communities um, at, in Dublin. Um, you know, Youngstown is one of the hardest hits. And when you don't get the infrastructure of the future, it makes it impossible to recover. And, and then there's no competition. Right. So if AT&T is not going there, well, then who's left? So in many in, in Ohio in particular, we have uh, the cable um, company that is most common here in the urban areas is uh, charter spectrum. Um, and so if they're the only option, you can get them for 60, 65 dollars a month or you can get and that is really good fast speeds. It's really solid. Or you can get AT&T, um, but you might only get three meg wow. and you're going to pay $40 for it. So <laughs> there's no, and then that's it. You don't have any other choices. Right. The lack of competition is huge. One of the things that, that I always want to tack on when people say three meg is that you have to understand, I know that you get this already, but people should understand that you're not just talking about a solid three megabit connection. You're probably talking about a connection that's advertised at three meg, may deliver two, probably resets itself a couple times a day. I mean, that's an old school technology that just does not work as well and is often not maintained very well because it's a part of the, uh, the state that AT&T is walking away from. But let's let's dive into um, another issue, which is um, net neutrality. Um, you know, as as this airs, we're two days away from the Federal Communications Commission gutting net neutrality. I think there's a theme uh, from some of the cable and telephone companies. They, they may try to present this as kind of like a Cadillac problem, where you know net neutrality is just for you know upper um, middle class type of folks who might worry about it, but it really doesn't impact anyone else. What's your perspective from uh, the digital inclusion? and digital equity lens? So our concern is that this is going to cause more digital divides. When folks use the term digital divide, we will often remind them there's more than one digital divide. As technology progresses, we will we find ourselves in more and more situations where there's somebody who has access or somebody who has skills and somebody who doesn't. 
if our internet service providers are allowed to charge extra or not charge for certain types of content, will then individuals who have resources just purchase what it is they needed to purchase to begin with, and those who don't have resources will accept whatever it is the providers are giving them that is the cheapest option. When, when the content is tied to that, we are exacerbating, we are creating another digital divide. There is a line of thought that um, giving the ISPs more power um, may allow them to create lower cost packages for people who don't use as much. Uh, you know, I suspect one of the populations that we haven't talked about that you, your groups work with is elderly folks who may want internet access but don't use a whole lot. And there's an argument that, um, you know, if there could be fast lanes and slow lanes, maybe the slow lanes would be less expensive for people who are more price sensitive. Would that help that population at all? It helps if we don't want them to ever advance. which just kind of makes me want to scream. So if a family can only afford the slow lane, um, like actually it's not too far from the data cap situation that we have now. So if you can't, the closest you can get is um, your mobile phone, which has a data cap and your whole family's on two gig or something insane. Um, You have to decide how you're going to use that. And if you're in a slow lane, you're going to make those kinds of decisions where, well, no, honey, you can't take that online class because when I looked at the university's website, it said it had this minimum requirement for speed and we can't afford that speed. So the fast lane, slow lane is very, it's very real. Right. And one of the things that, you know, I often say when I'm presented with that argument, when I'm not making it as a devil's advocate host position (laughs) is that I can't remember the last time a major monopoly argued for deregulation in order to lower anyone's bill. (laughs) Yes, 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 exactly. And we're not, those options aren't available now. Uh, Why do we think all of a sudden it's going to become available? The only low cost options that we have right now from major internet service providers were mandated or they were agreed upon in some kind of merger agreement. Um, Some of them decided to to keep them, like Comcast kept their internet essentials, which is fabulous. I wish every internet service provider had a low-cost option that they would keep (laughs) for more than just a couple of years. Right, that you could count on? Um, yes. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about um, in the final part of our conversation about data. Um, one of the things that that you noted regarding Cleveland um, is that you know it's not like AT and T is going around saying these are the neighborhoods we're not investing in. And um, similarly, um, there's no federal database of how much people are paying for internet access. Uh, what do you all do to try and get the data that you need to do your analyses? The lack of consumer internet service cost data is a huge problem in the United States. And I think that problem is actually leading to policymakers misunderstanding the issue of the digital divide. Because if we're always talking about the data that we do have, which is where is which infrastructure, um, which side note, that data is not very good either, because it's limited to only it's based upon erroneous assumptions. Um, that, but that we do have some data. So it's a good starting point. Starting points are really important. We have data on where infrastructure is, whether or not we think it's great. What we don't have is the cost data. So if you have data that says where it is, then you're going to focus upon where the infrastructure is, but you're not focusing on how much it costs people to access that infrastructure. Because we don't have any cost data, nobody's talking about the cost of internet. 
And it's incredibly frustrating because it really controls the conversation. As far as I know, one of the, the main sources of information we have on why people have not adopted is the Pew studies. And they seem to suggest that it's a significant barrier. In, in your experience, you know, what is, is cost the main barrier? Or, you know, do you, can you say that with any kind of precision? We know from the work that Pew's done, from the work from um, the census and, and others, from, re- from academic researchers, we know that the barriers are cost, uh, digital literacy, and the, the term that was often used is relevance. So do you think the internet is important to you? If you think it's not important to you, then you don't purchase your home broadband subscription. The relevance issue, what we've learned through researchers in the past few years, is that the relevance issue is tied very closely to cost and digital literacy. So if you say it's not important and thus you're not going to purchase it, are you saying that because you actually don't know what you could do with it? So it's a digital, it's tied up in digital literacy. Are you saying that because you can't afford it? And why, why am I going to talk to you about something I can't afford? I can't afford it, so I'm just going to tell you I don't need it. They are not three distinct barriers. All three of them are tied to each other. Yeah, that makes sense. I, th- I think I went through this with relatives. My in-laws um, live up north in Minnesota, and um, it took them. Uh, it was a lot, lot of years where we went up there, and they did not have any internet access, and there was no mobile access through the carrier that my wife and I used. So, um, you know, we go up there for a weekend, and we would not have any internet access, which was um, uh, quite amazing. You know, as someone who does a job in which I'm responding to emails often seven days a week, now they have a DSL connection. That's actually better than I thought it would be. It's on the order of six megabits on a good day. And it's been fascinating because I don't think they would have thought of what it could do. So we got them an iPad. And with the internet connection, it's so easy for them to peruse books from the county and local library. And so I used to be on the hunt and use bookstores to look out for books that I thought that my father-in-law would like. And now he just finds all kinds of books on the library. And, and it's, you know, it's this amazing thing. And it's what's interesting is that in some ways it's unlocked a public resource that was already there, but inconvenient for them. And, right. and now they can use it differently. But, but they wouldn't have known that until they spent, it wasn't just something that they learned in like a week of using the internet. They had to have a, a period of time where they were using it and uh, trying different things, experimenting. And libraries are learning that too. Right. So there are more libraries recognizing that that they need to be working on home broadband because their resources are so digital that they have created their own digital divide unintentionally. Right. Intending to be very helpful to the community and have these digital resources, but that there are portions of the population that have to get into the library branch in order to make use of those resources. And there are, there are the individuals, there are those of us who are more fortunate and don't have to get ourselves out of our you know, houses to get to those resources. If someone's listening to this and they're, they're thinking, wow, I, I could do something, I could help out. Uh, is there a place where they can get plugged in or get inspired as to what they might do? That's a tough one. And the reason that it's tough to send folks somewhere is because these efforts are so local, right? So it is asking around locally. Um, what you can do is go to the NDIA website, digitalinclusion.org, and on our affiliates um, there's a tab that says affiliates. You click on affiliates and then it's kind of buried. We're in process of fixing this. There's a link that says map. So if you click on the map, you'll be able to see where our affiliates are. Know that 
it's important to note that we don't know where all the digital inclusion programs are. These are the ones we've managed to gather into the family, but there are a lot more beyond this. So this is just a starting place to see who's working on digital inclusion efforts in your area. Um, if you know of others that we don't know of, send them to us. <laughs> we, we, we want to widen the family. We want to bring more folks in. Um, but it's also, I think, a matter of asking around in your community. So who's teaching digital literacy? And you'll probably be told the library, and then you might also be told a church or a community center. Great. Well, thank you so much for this initial interview. And we're going to have you back soon to talk about some other uh, matters around digital inclusion and go a little bit deeper. I look forward to that. Thank you, Chris. That was Christopher with Angela Seifer from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. We have transcripts from this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcasts at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research by also subscribing to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle License to Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 284 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs> <laughs>